You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Would you please uh, stand as you're able for the reading of Psalm 117? Psalm uh, Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from the lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have led fast to your past, held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. For men, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I just am so thankful for the ways that you speak to our heart. Father, I thank you for the scriptures, which just have never-ending depth. Father, for the men and women that you use in the scriptures that teach us, that are broken and fallen like us, but yet are courageous for you. And so, Father, we just thank you for your good work, your truth that comes through the scriptures. And Father, as we go today to investigate Psalm 17, Lord, I thank you for the ways you've spoken to my heart, and it's just my prayer that you might speak to the heart of those that hear this message today. May your words flow through me to speak to our hearts, to transform us, for us to trust you as our Savior. Father God, we just love you. We ask for your blessing on this minute to fly ahead. In your holy name we pray. You may be seated. So, We've kind of already defined psalm, but by definition in a dictionary, a psalm is a sacred song or poem used in worship, especially one of the biblical hymns collected in the book of Psalms. However, Psalm 17 is different in that it is a prayer, a prayer of David. We only see psalms of prayer four other times in the scriptures. I found that pretty amazing. Four out of the 150, five times out of the 150, there are just five of them are prayers. Psalm 17 is one. The other four include Psalm 86, another prayer of David. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses. Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted. And then Psalm 142, a prayer of David when he was in a cave. 
As you've already heard, Psalm 17 is a prayer of David expressing his heartfelt emotion and his confidence that God will protect him, an innocent man himself, from his deadly enemies. I have to tell you, upon my first initial reading of Psalm 17, I was in a bit of shock at the confidence that David approached God with. I felt like he was arrogant in that he was, in essence, declaring his upright, holy, pure, and self-proclaimed innocence from sin before God. However, obviously, with further study, I came to discover and understand uh, more of David's position and his plea with God. So to give us some context, according to David uh, Guzik, this, this psalm has no firm connection to any pr particular recorded event in David's life. But it is, uh, it is not hard to see. It belonged to the long period when Saul was being hunted by, uh, Saul was hunting David. During that time, David refused to strike against Saul when he had the opportunity. So in a broad sense, if we look at an outline of today's scripture, um, if we look at verses 1 through 7, basically we're looking at David's integrity uh, that he shares with us. And then verses 8 through 15, the character of David's enemies and the hope of David's happiness in the Lord. But more specifically today, I broke it down into uh, smaller sections. Um, so for the outline we will follow today will be verses 1 through 2, David's plea in a time of crisis. Verses 3 through 5, David's plea from a tested heart with confidence in his motive, motives and actions. Verses 6 through 9, David's request and petition to keep him safe um, through, the, through the Lord's power based on God's loyal covenant of love. Verses 10 through 14, David's lament for God to defeat his arrogant and proud enemies. And then verse 15, praise for God's faithfulness. So the overlying theme, uh, David is wholeheartedly expressing confidence that God will protect an innocent man from his deadly enemies. One of the first things that came to my mind was the story of David and Bathsheba. So I questioned, did David petition this prayer before his adultery of Bathsheba? One wouldn't think so based on David's assertion of his innocence. But yet we should take note that David wasn't saying in this psalm that he had never sinned. If this were the case, not, not one of us would have any confidence to stand before God in prayer requesting for his help and mercy. So let's take a look at each of these sections in a bit more detail. We look at verses 1 through 2, and I'll reread these sections as we go. Uh, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from the lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. In verse 1, while we know David often prayed in times of crisis, it becomes obvious that he believed that God had every reason to attend to his cry because his cause was just. David had a clear conscience, knowing that in this crisis he made personal innocent, maintained personal innocence. He was not lying or trying to deceive the Lord or his enemies. He was, not, he was innocent, and his plea was sincere, and he knew that God was the only one that could protect him. Verse 2, David spoke honestly about this problem. As we also reflect in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We see that David comes to God with some confidence through a tested conscience. At the end of verse 2, we also see that David trusts upon God's justice more than his own cause. He says, let your eyes behold the right. Look at the humble and desperate position from which David cries out to the Lord. It seems obvious, I think, 
that it's only when we cry out to the Lord in a position of complete submission and humility do we actually get a glimpse into the overwhelming love of our Father in Heaven. For me personally, I have three short um, personal examples I'd like to share. One of them I've shared with you before um, about my wife and my first three years of marriage. It was tough. It was a struggle. And during that time, through prayer and hope and faithful in our faithful um, God, I was in a position of desperation and helplessness and ignorance, and to be quite honest, a great deal of selfish stupidity. But through God's faithfulness, he drew us closer to him. And that Saturday, I'll never forget when my wife came to me talking about a house divided cannot stand, and we surrendered our lives and everything we do to putting Christ at the center. And we praise God for that. A time of desperation, though, for me, certainly. I also learned patience through prayer and hope and a faithful God with our oldest four children. As most of you know, our four oldest children were adopted through the foster care system. Uh, for those who know, Tricia, Diamond, Eric, and Amy. It took nearly three and a half years to be able to adopt them. Until the end of that journey, we really never knew if these kiddos would stay in our home permanently. I remember specifically holding Eric as a baby each night and just crying out to God that he would be my forever son. And 18 years later, that six foot and a quarter inch giant, my son. <clears throat> Many of you also remember nearly two years ago our short but difficult journey that led us to get Evan. If you remember, we had a phone call on a Friday to head down to Florida to pick up, as the um, uh, lady said, my son. And so we packed up our bags, and we got the kids loaded, and on a Saturday morning the next day, we headed off to Florida to get a phone call to find out that their mom had returned to pick him up. Obviously, our prayer is for that child to be where he should be, but we were broken. I felt the pain and, and for a loss of someone I never even met. I felt hopelessness that something so seemingly perfect could ever happen again. But it did, a week and a half later. And I remember in that time, Christy Marino was talking to my wife and comforting her and saying, you know, God's plan is perfect, and we just have to trust in that plan. But my flesh was, we were going to pick up this newborn baby. How could it get any better? But we had to submit to that and realize that God's plan is perfect. Now, I must say, I'm really grateful that we picked up Evan eight days old. <laughs> so he not only was faithful to our desires, but obviously to what he desired for us. And praise God, Evan, the little noisemaker in the back today, is with us, as you know. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon wrote, A cry is our earliest utterance, and in many ways the most natural of human sounds. If our prayer should, like the infant's cry, be more natural than intelligent, and more earnest than elegant, it will be nonetheless eloquent with God. There is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. I love that. This is truly how I felt during these trying times, like a helpless child, crying out and moaning, if you will, to my Father in heaven. You, our church family, experienced that with us as we sobbed and poured out our hearts. And if you remember, you gathered and prayed over us to give thanks for your love and your care. Verses 3 through 5, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. 
My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Commentary writer Paul Jones makes the point that typically throughout the Psalms, David is expressing his confidence in God and in God's character. However, in Psalm 17, David is expressing his confidence in his own innocence. In verse 3, David says that God has tried his heart, visited him, tested him. Once again, David is confident in his innocence. David continues proclaiming that his mouth and speech and his works are also innocent. Lastly, he has avoided the ways of the violent. In other words, David put his flesh aside and held fast to God's paths and not active impulsively or selfishly upon his fleshly desires, Satan's lies. Once again, Jones emphasizes that David isn't being self-righteous, but just that he is innocent and not justified of the persecution that he is facing from his deadly enemies. So David feels confident that God will protect him from those enemies. David's feet have been firmly placed in the confidence of God's faithfulness. In verse 4, we see how David has learned how to protect himself, his family, and his men from Saul without becoming a twisted and arrogant destroyer like Saul. In verse 5, we see the humility that David, has, David had as he asked God to put him in God's paths, not his own. I believe this furthers our case for the purity and innocence that David approaches God. Guzik poses three questions for every, Christians to, every Christian to ask. One, do I allow God to test my heart? That's a scary place to go. Transparency with God and true vulnerability to allow God to convict our heart. Let's take a minute and think about transparency and vulnerability. In our GCs and in our church, we hear these words all the time. But what do they actually look like? Transparency is openly sharing, I believe, one's struggles with other believers, not hiding our sin. I believe that a lot of people within our church do that really, really well. However, vulnerability, I think, is the harder of the two. This is the tougher, more difficult path, and I think often overlooked in the truest sense. Vulnerability goes beyond just sharing your sin, but opens the door to true accountability. And let's be realistic, it's much easier to share your sin than it is to actually be held accountable for that sin. Let's face it, we like to pretend we're humble in admitting our sin, but realistically, we don't want to let go of it, and true accountability won't let us keep sinning. Something to ponder. Anyway, back to our original question, do I allow God to test my heart? Are we being disobedient to God's word and instruction? Are we being selfish? No, I am. This typically requires accountability to even see in our own lives. Question two, can I be corrected? Or do I like my sin too much? I've shared this before. Many years ago on Christian Radio, I heard this quote says, we will continue to sin until the reward of repentance is greater than that of the sin. I'm read that again. We will continue to sin until the reward of repentance is greater than that of the sin. You think about it, as God continues to dwell in our heart and nudge us in those ways of righteousness, we cling to that sin until eventually, I think, we let go, hopefully, as we surrender and humble ourselves and trust God. Question three, will I listen to others when they tell me that I may be wrong? Obviously, as a Christian, this is our hope and intention. However, pride, I believe, is Satan's greatest tool to lure us away from God. Personal examples, throughout my life, my wife has been often my most reliable and outspoken accountability partner, holding my feet to the fire. 
as God's word states, this is one of the roles of the church as well. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, to Christ. I will tell you from experience, this is very challenging and sometimes calling for us as Christians. I believe in our rational moments, when there isn't turmoil, conflict, or correction, we would be wise to really ask ourselves, how well would I receive each of the three questions above? Almost a pH test of our heart, if you will. How pure is my heart to receive that question? At my core, am I really at a place where I'm willing to receive correction and let go of those idols in my life? Verses 6 through 9. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. These verses are basically David's petition to the Lord. In the previous verses, David expresses his confidence in his own innocence. But now David's petitioning to the Lord for protection. In verses 6 through 7, we see how confident David is in the midst of his crisis. He is confident that God would hear him when he calls, providing refuge even amidst this life-threatening situation. In one translation, verse 7 reads, Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. I like that. Marvelous, by Webster's definition, means causing great wonder, extraordinary, splendid. This isn't just some ordinary love. It's something far beyond our understanding, which I believe verse 8 really clarifies and further defines. I love this. Verse 8, first part here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. This is really something truly precious, valuable, and perhaps fragile. This part of verse 8 makes me think about all of my children, especially my daughters as they were young, and in particular, my youngest daughter, Mari, who is five years old now and is so precious to me. She makes my heart melt and fills me with joy and gladness. In fact, I think that little... I think that my heart just oozes with love for her, such a precious girl to me. There's nothing that I wouldn't do for her. I feel called to love her and protect her at all costs. Even in a literal sense, think about our eye, a tender and precious part of our body that God has intentionally protect, protected in its position with bones, eyelids, eyelashes, and whatnot. It is, it is heavily protected. Second half of verse 8, hold me in the shadow of your wings. Once again, look at the imagery this sets forth. The idea of how a mother bird shields and protects her young from predators, the weather, and many other dangers. Once again, Spurgeon sums it up well. Even as a, the parent bird completely shields her brood from evil and even cherish, and meanwhile cherishes them with warmth of her own heart by covering them with her wings, so do thou with me. Most condescending God, for I am thine offspring, and thou hast parents' love and perfection. And finally, in verse 9, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. As we can see, the threat of David's life was real. They were out to kill him. However, look at what David does amidst these threats. He prays. Question for you and me How often do we turn to and trust? in prayer in the middle of a crisis. I believe most of us would pray, 
Do we, but do we actually believe that our prayer will be heard and answered by God? I know that I struggle with this question, but one thing that I have learned is that in hindsight, we can see 2020. As we look back on our lives, we can do, uh, clearly see God's faithfulness, which should give us even more confidence in trusting him and going to him in prayer. However, it's amazing how many times I need to be reminded of this truth. A couple of fun quotes I ran across. McLaren says, fears that have become prayers are already more than half conquered. Read that again. Fears that have been, become prayers are already more than half conquered. Another one, Boyce quotes the Bible teacher who had made the habit of praying a certain prayer when he felt like he was under attack. His prayer goes, Lord, your property is in danger. I like that. Verses 10 through 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. In these verses, we hear a lament and honest outcry in fear of David's perception of his position. Verse 10, they close their hearts to pity with their mouths they speak arrogantly. In this verse, we continue to get a closer understanding of the condition of the hearts of David's enemies. Basically, we get a picture that his enemies are unfeeling and attacking the innocent without any remorse. These guys are basically unfeeling, cold, arrogant, and proud, and sinning without a bit of remorse. In fact, we get the picture that they are bragging about their evil works as they attempt to hunt David down. Quite honestly, what a bunch of jerks. They were, they were ruthless. Verse 11, they have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. This verse shows us a bit broader goal of David's enemy as we get the impression that David's enemy is not only after him, but also others. Perhaps David's peeps, if you will. Surrounded our steps and cast us to the ground. Another translation for verse 11 reads, They have set their eyes crouching on down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey. I don't know about you, but this imagery strikes fear in my heart. As a lion is eager to tear his prey. Not exactly a comforting phrase. I get the impressions that these guys were completely ruthless, totally focused, and absolutely filled with hatred and evil. These guys are out to destroy David like a hungry lion, hungry and savage lion would take down and destroy its prey. He is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. This verse further reinforces the focused and ruthless path of David's enemy and also helps us to see the relentlessness of their pursuit. These men are lurking in the shadow of his, shadows of David's path, waiting for the right time to destroy him and his fellow innocents. There is never a restful moment for David. I can honestly say that I've never been hunted down or persecuted for really anything significant that I can think of. Maybe you have been. Perhaps you might have had a glimpse of understanding of, of David's situation. I don't know, but the one thing we do know is that God is faithful and only a prayer away from us amidst any trial we might be going through. Verses 13 and 14. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. These verses are more petitions 
to God from David. It's basically a second round of requests that David declares his dependence on God for protection. We know from 1 Samuel 17, 33-37 that David was tough, having defeated a bear and a lion as a boy. So in essence, David probably had the tools, smarts, and wherewithal to protect himself, but David knew that he needed to see his enemy defeated at the hand of God, not at the hand of David. We see this position from David in, in verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. David is asking God to meet his enemy in battle, face to face, and cast his enemy down to his knees. Secondly, David wants God to deliver him from these, these enemies. So in essence, or in layman's terms, David's saying, take these dirtbags out and deliver me, set me free. In verse 14, we see David almost take up a second lament. I guess the first one wasn't enough, and maybe David is feeling that he has a strong enough case before the Lord that he can justify yet one more punch to his enemies falling. Forgive me for this imagery. For those of you that are old enough to remember Home Alone, it made me think of when the little boy just kept adding insult to injury over and over. Take that, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. And I think that's kind of where David's at in that position. He wants God to take him out. So we also see in verse 14 that David acknowledges that his enemy only has uh, what we see here on earth. They have no future in heaven. Their portion is only here on earth because they have none of it in the life to come. In the second half of verse 14, we read, You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Initially, I was perplexed as to why God allowed these evil men to have and enjoy children, which we know from Psalm 27 that children are a blessing from the, uh, the Lord and a reward from Him. However, what we see is twofold. First, we see that God sometimes chooses to be generous to the good and the wicked. As Jones states, He, God, causes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's good and kind and generous indiscriminately. And yet, this goodness and kindness leaves these wicked men all the more culpable. They take what God so generously and kindly gives them, and they squander it. They take the resources that they didn't pay for, and they spend it on oppressing the innocent, innocent people of God who gives all these gifts to them. Second, we are reminded of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jones continues, The rich man had all sorts of material blessings, and Lazarus had nothing but pain and misery. They both died. Lazarus went to Abram's bosom. The rich man went to hell. And when the rich man wanted mercy, this is what Abram's response was. Child, you had your good things during your lifetime, and Lazarus had his bad things. But now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in agony. Receiving good things in this life is no sign that God approves of you. For men like these... Wicked and deadly enemies in the psalm, it actually makes them even guiltier in God's eyes. I don't know about you, but at the end of the, this journey, I know where I'd want to be on Judgment Day. But to be honest, when I feel betrayed by somebody, my flesh desires to take them out myself. In fact, this is my first instinct, my fleshly response. So initially, I probably don't even want God to be a part of it. Not a good place. Not a good place. I'm falling for Satan's lies there. And finally, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Right out of the chute in verse 15, David sets himself in contrast to his enemies, who only look at, looked at 
uh, looked to this life and not to eternity. Even while David is still very much threatened by his enemies and certainly not free from danger, he has peace and gives praise to our Father in heaven, knowing that someday he will see the face of God and be in communion with him forever. I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David knew that he had every bit of, and had every bit of confidence that the transition from this life to the next life was like a waking. As, as author Paul Jones says, now we know from what David says elsewhere, and even from that, uh, what the New Testament says of David, that he, this is not self-righteousness or righteousness based on the law, but it is the righteousness of one to whom sin is not imputed, whose transgression the Lord forgives. That righteousness based on faith in God's promises will allow David to see God's face. He concludes, so the enemies are satisfied with food and children, but David will be satisfied with the Lord's presence when he, wa presence when he wakes, as it were, from this short and fleeting life. So as Christ followers, we know that this righteousness is a gift from God, granted to those who receive the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith. Amen? So there's some application and challenge for us. How often do we retreat instinctively to prayer in crisis? And do we truly believe what we claim to believe about the power of prayer? If so, do our lives reflect that truth in our behavior? I know for me it's difficult. I believe in the power of prayer. But do I really believe when I get on my knees and pray in those times? Am I really believing that to be true? Think about this. What was it that Jesus' disciples asked of him? Was it to be able to heal people? Was it their, was their request for Jesus to give them the ability to part the Red Sea or some other similar superpower? No. What did they ask for? They asked Jesus how to pray. We see this in Luke 11, 1 through 13. That was their, what their desire was, how to pray. Let me remind you of the McLaren's quote. Fears that have become prayers are already more than half conquered. I think that's a great reminder. Fears that have become prayers are already more than half conquered. So as we turn our hearts to prayer, like David modeled so well, let's examine our hearts. Do we really believe that God is listening? Do we really believe it? Do we really trust the power of prayer? Do we really have confidence in a glorious heavenly hope? It would be my encouragement that we truly ask these questions of ourselves. Do we really believe what we say we believe about God, his faithfulness, his protection, his promises? If so, our lives should model these beliefs. So in conclusion, in summary, there's four points I just want to touch on one last time as we uh, wrap this up. First is, this psalm isn't about how perfect or blameless David was or a legalistic checkoff sheet for him to justify himself as more righteous than anyone else. Number two, it is a prayer, a plea from David to the Lord as he, in essence, begs God for protection from his enemies. David had guarded his heart and tongue and had done nothing wrong to deserve to have his life threatened. David, David was able to stand before God with a pure heart in this circumstance. Number three, we see David's confidence in the Lord's faithfulness and protection. David realizes that amidst his difficult and life-threatening situation, he need not envy the most prosperous men of the world. 
who seemingly have their portion in this life. And lastly, as Matthew Henry so poetically wraps it up, there is no satisfaction for a soul but in God and in, and in his good works toward us and his good work in us. Yet that satisfaction will not be perfect till we come to heaven. Amen. One last reminder. As Christ followers, we know that this glorious heavenly hope is a gift from God, granted to those who receive the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith. Let us pray as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for the journey that you allowed me to prepare this message. And Lord, I just pray somehow, some way that it touches the hearts of those um, that are hearing it. Father, again, we thank you for your word, for your truth. Lord, it is our, our book that you have given us as a gift to know you, to know your character. And so, Father, we just celebrate that. Uh, Lord, thank you for using ordinary men to do extraordinary things and broken men to, do, um, to show us, to model for us uh, who you call us to be. So, Father, may we be innocent before you, but just trust in you, Lord. May we seek you and your will. May we turn to you in prayer, truly seek you, and trust that you will answer our prayers, Lord. Father, you are a good God. Thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for his ministry, his death on the cross, and Lord, forgiving us for sin and his resurrection, Lord. Father, we love you, give you thanks. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.